0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. What is the purpose of signs in the Bible? Billy Graham writes, In the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew's devastation, as my grandson was working night and day helping the survivors to get water and food, he noticed a sign on the roof of one of the houses which read, Okay, God, you've got our attention, now what? Graham then says, I see storms of... Apocalyptic proportions on the horizon. God is beginning to get our attention. Now what? Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Today we're going to see what biblical signs should accomplish. you will also be very relieved to know that I have cast the demon out of my iPad, and so we should be good this week. I actually just reformatted it, but that doesn't sound nearly as spiritual. Look at verse 18 with me. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew. And Philip told Jesus. You know, all these miracles that Jesus was doing wasn't just a dog and pony show to keep people amused. They were signs. What is a sign in the Bible? A sign is something that is made by someone to make sure that a person gets to the right destination. And God has given mankind plenty of signs in His Word. In things like fulfilled prophecy, that if anyone honestly looks to it, they will be guided safely home. The fact that Jesus is performing undeniable signs is simply infuriating to these Pharisees. For they had ordered that anyone who knew Jesus' whereabouts was to tell them so that they could go and arrest him. Ironically, there in plain sight was the very one they desperately wanted to see surrounded by thousands of people, but instead of turning Jesus over to the authorities, the crowds were loudly hailing him as the Messiah. Afraid of the crowd's reaction, if they arrested him openly, the Pharisees could only look on in frustration and dismay, Now, not surprisingly, they lashed out at one another, saying, you see that you aren't doing any good. Confronted with Jesus' incredible popularity, in spite of their best efforts to silence him, they began to blame each other. In total dismay, they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. This, of course, was an exaggeration, but would to God that that was true. This is clearly seen in verse 20 when some Greeks now appear on the scene. The original texts indicate that these Greeks were accustomed to come and worship at the feast. What that means is they were not just curious visitors or one-time investigators. No doubt they were what the Bible called God-fearers. That means that they were Gentiles who attended the Jewish synagogue and sought the truth, but they had not yet became full proselytes. At any rate, they came to Philip and Philip, who did not know whether Jesus would talk to Gentiles or not, Went to Andrew. Incidentally, both Philip and Andrew have Greek names, and both men had came from Bethsaida. That's a town that's located near the Greek city of an area east, known as Syrophenicia. And together, Philip and Andrew conveyed the Greeks' request to Jesus. Maybe the Greeks felt some type of affinity with these two disciples, and hoped that they would have compassion on them as outsiders. Now, if we ask ourselves, why did Philip hesitate to bring the Greeks to Jesus immediately? We must remember that from the disciples' point of view, there had been some ambiguity in Christ's action towards the Gentiles. What do I mean? Well, when he had sent them out on their first preaching mission, he had instructed them with these words, Do not go among the Gentiles or any, any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to just the lost sheep of Israel. He also told the Syrophoenician woman, First let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. He also told the woman of Samaria, Salvation is from the Jews. On the other hand, Jesus had healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman at her request and apparently had gone out of his way not only to reach the woman of Samaria, but also to use that to preach to the entire town. And so we recognize that Jesus was not bigoted in his more restrictive statements and actions. He simply felt an obligation to proclaim this coming of the kingdom first to Israel and fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. But in Romans 15, Paul emphasized that it has always been God's plan to bring the Gentiles into his kingdom. He writes... For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again Isaiah says, Though shall come from the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now in that brief passage, Paul quoted from all three divisions of the Old Testament, that being the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. This was demonstrating to the Jews from their own scriptures the truth of God's plan for Gentile salvation. So these Greeks come up to Philip with one of the most beautiful requests in all of Scripture. They say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And shouldn't that be the desire of every Christian's heart? We wish to see Jesus. We long to see Jesus. Did you know that a crown will be given to those who wish to see Christ? We find this in 2 Timothy 4.6. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul writes, From already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. And then he says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, I know those Greeks will be the recipient of that crown, and I hope we are also. So we see that Philip tells Andrew, and together they go and tell Jesus. Do you ever feel that the resources, time, and spiritual gifts that you have to offer, that they're too insignificant to really make much of a difference in God's kingdom? What I mean is, if one cannot sing like an angel... Or preach powerfully, or pray and have the earth shake, or have faith that moves the mightiest of mountains, or has unspeakable love that has no limits, then why even bother serving in God's kingdom? Now, unfortunately, many Christians foolishly believe that the public results of service are more important than the object of one's service, which is pleasing and glorifying God. And while service that is seen by many is often deemed impressive, so are the acts done in secret in which no eye will ever see except the Father in heaven. Now, as far as we know, Andrew never preached to multitudes of people. He never founded any church. He never wrote an epistle, and he was not even mentioned in the book of Acts. But we know that his indiscreet service has been heard loud and clear For several centuries. From Andrew's testimony, we learned there are no insignificant gifts and no inconspicuous service in our service to God. Now I do think it's interesting that at Jesus' birth, Gentiles came from the east to worship him. And here, just prior to his death, Gentiles come from the West for the same reason. Verse 23, please. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, I do not know what Andrew and Philip were expecting when they first told Jesus that these Greeks had come to see him. But I am certain that they were completely surprised by his answer. They might have expected him to say, I am not seeing Greeks now. Or maybe I would be glad to see them. But Jesus voiced neither of these. Instead, he seemed to look upon the coming of the Greeks as some kind of sign that the climax of his mission had at last arrived. For he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this phrase should make us think of the other instances in the gospel in which we are told that his hour had not yet come. The first was in John chapter 2. There Jesus had been confronted by his mother with the implied request that he do something about the lack of wine at a wedding. He replied, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. In the same way, we read in John chapter 7 that Christ's brothers also wanted him to go up to Jerusalem at the time of the feast in order to do miracles there. They did not believe on him, John tells us. Jesus replied that his brothers could go up to Jerusalem anytime they wanted, for their time was always at their disposal. On the other hand, he said, The right time for me has not yet come. On two other occasions, when the leaders of the people were seeking to arrest him, John the Evangelist concludes, But no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. All through the three years of his public ministry, this had been the dominant theme. His time had not yet come. But now here, it suddenly changes. Before, my hour has not yet come, but now the hour has come. The central theme of this message is the glory of God. We would have expected Jesus to say, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be crucified. He doesn't say that. Jesus saw beyond the cross to the glory that would follow. And that, my beloved, is the key to understanding the Christian life. We have to come to terms with the fact that in order to fully enter into the Christian life, we have to be willing to be crucified if we truly want to partake of his glory. That is what Paul meant when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. He meant that he had died to self in order that he might live for God. Or again in Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In saying this, Paul meant that his identification with Christ in death made it possible for him to live in Christ. And by Christian values, not by the world and its values. This is the principle then death and denial. What that teaches us is that it is only by death that true life ever comes. Last verse, please. Just now gives us a great picture of this in verse 24. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This section teaches us that Christianity isn't a religion in which Jesus does all the dying by himself. Notice it also says that he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. In this chapter, Jesus is giving us his final public teaching. And in this final public teaching before the crucifixion, he lets everyone in, Jews and Greeks alike, on the secret of life. Get a life, people say. And Jesus is going to tell us how. He says, Get a life. Not by asserting yourself, not by pampering yourself, not by changing yourself, but by dying to self. Now, we say the one who would save his life must save it. But Jesus says the one who must save his life must lose it. For only by losing it can he save it for the life to come. So why should we listen to advice that seems initially so foolish to our ears for two reasons. First, the one who spoke those words did exactly what he said. He gave up his life, yet in such a way that we can hardly regard his having done so as being foolish. Secondly, by giving his life, he was extraordinarily successful as he gained both his own life and also a vast host of followers. Jesus used the image of a seed to illustrate the great spiritual truth that there can be no glory without suffering, no fruitful life without death, and no victory without surrender. Now, of itself, a seed is weak and useless, but when it is planted, it dies and can become fruitful. There is both a beauty and a bounty when a seed dies And fulfills its purpose. Now, if a seed could talk, it would no doubt complain about being put into the cold, dark earth. But the only way it can achieve its goal and its purpose for being is to be planted. In the same way, God's children are just like seeds. They, in and of themselves, are small and insignificant, but they have life in them, God's life. However, that life can never be fulfilled unless we yield ourselves to God and permit him to plan us wherever he wants. In other words, we must die to self in order to live unto God. Here Jesus is the supreme example. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, he would He would have remained alone in heaven, at least far as the human race was concerned. But when his seed died, if you will, It has produced billions upon billions of people who will one day inhabit heaven because of his death. I learned something this week. Did you know that if you took a single grain of wheat and put it in the ground, it would produce a single stalk? But if you took the seeds from that stalk, planted them, and kept repeating the process, within 14 years, every square inch of the earth would be covered with wheat. That tells us mortification brings multiplication. Death brings life. I read a story about a missionary who went to the Amazon basin and his family came to visit him. After traveling by plane, helicopter, canoe, and foot, they reached him at last. When they found him, the first thing they said was, Wow, you've really buried yourself down here. A missionary said, no, not buried, planted, big difference. What was he saying? Death brings life. Is it easy? No. Is it worth it? A billion times over. But today you, ever, you hardly ever hear about this aspect of Christianity. The guys on TV say, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. You will be rich. And you'll never be sick, and your kids will only fight about who gets to do the dishes every night. Now, we already see that in some Christian films and books, which portray the Christian life as some kind of hallelujah paradise, which is totally devoid of the realism of the New Testament. They say, come to Christ and all your problems will be solved. And sure enough, some of your problems will be solved. But we must also fairly say, come to Christ and get a new set of problems that may break your heart a thousand times over. And not only that, some of your solutions will only be found on the other side of the grave. Now, it can be a heartbreaking life for those who will have it, but it can also be a heart-mending life, too. It is John twelve twenty four played out before our eyes. I think Jesus would say to us this morning precisely what he said to those Greek seekers. You will only find me in the light of Calvary. And yet we can be prone to complain by saying things like, Why is the Lord doing this? Why isn't he taking care of that? Doesn't he love me? Now I can't answer the question of why your loved one died, why your spouse left, why your business went bankrupt. Or why your cancer returned. But I can say that Jesus declares to the seeker, to the Greek, and to you and me, you will never understand me apart from the cross. Now in fairness to the Lord, he never promised us a life of puppies and rainbows. In stark contrast to that, Jesus repeatedly cautioned those who would follow him to consider the extreme cost that that could entail. Listen to these sobering words out of Matthew ten thirty-seven. This is Jesus speaking. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And then he says, he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake. Will find it. What he's saying there is the one who loves his life in this world by preferring over the interests of God's kingdom ultimately loses it. Now, in this context, it refers to preferring Christ over one's family, possession, goals, plans, desires, and maybe even over our physical life. Now, the most interesting thing of that verse is that it contains a contrast. That is not apparent in our English translations. We read, The man who loves or hates his life, and he shall keep his life. And for us, there is no way of telling that the first word life and the second word life there are different in the original language. Yet this is the heart of what this verse is saying. The first word is "suke," which refers to the life of the mind. We call it the ego. We get our English word psychology from this. It means the human personality that thinks, plans for the future, and charts its course. Jesus is saying that that is what must die. To put it another way, the independent will of man must die so that the follower of Christ will actively submit to his will and his will only. The second word is zoe, which joined to the adjective of eternal means the divine life. Now, every Christian has this eternal or divine life abiding in them right now, but he has it in its fullness only when his entire personality, with all its likes and its desires, are fully surrendered to Christ. It is close to saying the same thing, that the Christian will experience the fullness of God's blessing only when we consciously and deliberately walk in God's way. George Mueller could be our example here. He lived in England several generations ago and founded many great orphanages, maintaining them solely through prayer. He was extremely effective. But when asked about the secret of his effective service, Mueller replied, There was a day when I died, died to George Mueller. I died to his opinions, preferences, taste, and will. I died to the world. It's approval or it's censure. I died to the approval or blame of my brethren or friends. And since then, I've studied only to show myself approved to God. To lose your own life in order to gain it into life means we must do what Mueller did. It means we must be willing to do anything for Christ if he directs it. It will not be a sad or gloomy thing either. Don't think that. The sad thing is to disobey him. To obey him is the fullness of joy. How does the song go? Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Remember, Hebrew says that it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the agonies of the cross. Spurgeon once wrote, proud man has a desire to preach new doctrine, to set up a new church, to be an original thinker, to judge and consider, and to do anything except obey. You know, too many of us might be worried about the things that we don't understand in the Bible. And what we should be doing is obeying the things that we do understand in the Bible. Like what? Husbands, love your wives. How's that for confusing? Wives, submit to your husbands. There's a good place to start. Or how about be kind to one another? Is that hard to comprehend? Or how about forgive one another as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you? Is that difficult to understand or mysterious? No. But as we do what we already know we should be doing, then and only then will more and more understanding and light Be given to us. It is only the crucified Christ dying in the place of sinners who saves this morning. What I mean is just the example of Christ alone does not save. Jesus is not saying to us that if we will only follow his example and try to live as he lived, we will find happiness in this life and salvation in the world to come. That is not his message. No man has ever been saved just by following Christ. Now, following is involved, of course. It is after we are saved we are to follow him, and he has left us an example for that. But we are not saved just by his example. We are saved through faith in what he did for us on the cross. After that, we can follow him. Moreover, we are are not saved by his teaching alone. Jesus did not say that he would point out the way to God and that if men and women would only follow that way, they could find him. That's what the teachers of other world religions have done, but not Christ. He did not say, I will show you the way. He said, I am the way. Besides, the entire teaching of the word of God is to the effect that he made the way by dying for us. And so... If we think that I need to try to emulate Christ because it will pay me off in some way, because it will make me feel like a worthwhile person, because then maybe God will listen to my prayers, that won't work. Why? Because you'll be constantly fighting against your natural instincts. You'll want to lie, but you know you're not supposed to. You'll want to be pure, but you won't be. It's a little bit like taking a piece of metal and it's bent one way, so you say, well, I guess I'll bend it back the other way. But when you bend a piece of metal, it puts tremendous stress on it, and it might break. The real way to change a piece of metal is to heat it, and then while it is soft, then change it. Then when it cools off, it will be perfect. My friends, the things you want to change in your Christian life, you want to become more like Christ, there's a wrong kind of motivation that's like bending in an artificial, mechanical way the metal of your character. But on the other hand, if you take the grateful joy that comes from discerning his death, knowing what he has done for you, then you're going to find that that will actually begin to change you. But it will change you from the inside. In a sense... It will heat you. It will mold you. It will really reshape you instead of just bend you in some kind of artificial way. Jesus does not identify true saving faith by perfection, but by affection. Those who truly come to Christ love Him above all else, all sin, even all self-righteousness, all relationships, and all self-will. But also... True salvation is not only affection, but also direction. The one who follows Jesus must follow him. As the scripture says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he has walked. As we finish up this morning, I want us to know that Christianity is not a safe religion. It could very well cost you your death. But even if it doesn't, it will absolutely cost you your life. That's because that's the king that we serve. Now, most kingdoms do anything that they can to protect the king. This is the unspoken premise of the game of chess, for example. When the king falls, the kingdom is lost. Therefore, the king must be protected at all costs. Now, another notable example came from the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day. Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately wanted to join the expeditionary forces and watch the invasion from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower was desperate to stop and for fear that the prime minister might be killed in battle. When it became apparent that Churchill would not be dissuaded, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority he contacted King George VI. And the king went and told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, he could only conclude that it was also his own duty as the king to join him on that battleship. Now, at this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down for he knew that he could never expose the king of England to that kind of danger. Why would I bring that out? because King Jesus did exactly the opposite. With royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, he suffered as a king's ransom his life for the life of the people. He would die for all the wrong things that we have ever done and would do, completely atoning for all of our sins. And the crown of thorns that were meant to be a mockery of his royal claims actually proclaimed his kingly dignity even in his death. And that, my beloved, is a king we're serving today. Let us pray. Lord, there is none like you. No other religion has a God willing to suffer and die for the very people who are causing the suffering and the dying. You stand alone in this respect and it stirs our hearts with love. As we remember you in communion this morning, let us be truly thankful that you are the friend of sinners. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, i ask...